CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune into the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job hobby to give a man back the dignity he once had your only interest is in how he behaves you'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave i am not a number i am a free man you were a number you weren't a man you want to be a few i wasn't jim crow and hell i was number 586 why do you do a warder's job it's a good job responsible job uh, officers like myself trying to scum we're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Hello, everyone. Okay, good afternoon, and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. It is 5.03 p.m., and I'm Virginia. And, and I... <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm Gene, and we'll be your host for today's show. You want to... I would like to acknowledge that CKUT is located on unceded Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeg, and Abenaki territories. Today we'll be airing a May 10th, 2018 piece by Jerry Blassengame, the executive director of Soteria Community Development Corporation and senior pastor of Soteria Christian Fellowship. He endeavors to empower individuals and the community through education, affordable housing, financial literacy, community and economic development, and entrepreneurship. Also, we have an interview I did with Mark Zamet about health care for elderly prisoners in our Canadian penitentiaries. Mark did 14 years behind bars for his crime and just recently completed his sentence to warrant of expiry. His insight and personal journey through the health care system in Correctional Service Canada is shocking and revealing. But first, here are some headlines. A prisoner in Ontario's Maplehurst Provincial Prison died of a suspected overdose this week. Five other prisoners on his range also overdosed but were revived and one remains in the hospital. According to the Globe and Mail, quote, last spring, the office of the chief coroner held a month-long inquest into the overdose deaths of eight men at the Hamilton-Wentworth Detention Center. The inquest resulted in 62 recommended availability of naloxone kits in the prisons, end quote. So far, it doesn't seem like the recommendations have been implemented. In the context where, in a context where tons of people are dying of overdoses and folks are marching in the streets to bring awareness to the overdose crisis, it seems important to keep in mind that people in prison are also affected. The Convergence des Luttes Anticapitalistes held their annual May Day demonstration on May 1st last week. The rowdy march was themed No Borders, and analysis around it focused specifically on the new migrant prison being built in Laval and why people should oppose it. During the march, prisoners smashed windows at the headquarters of the architecture firm LeMay, which is overseeing the construction of the new prison. LeMay's building was also covered in paint, and the demonstration was dispersed about 45 minutes afterwards. In an article published in La Presse on May 5th, an internal source from Correctional Services Canada told a journalist that of the 18 Indigenous elders employed by Correctional Services to oversee cultural and spiritual programming for Indigenous prisoners, Seven are self-identified as Indigenous and don't come from a recognized Indigenous community. 
The majority of these self-identified elders are members of the Alliance Autochtone de Québec, and their indigenous ancestry dates back nine generations at minimum, if it exists at all. The article is part of an attempt to detail a growing phenomenon of a vast increase in white people in Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia, self-identifying as indigenous or Métis since the 1990s, often in order to make contesting land claims against indigenous nations in those regions. The article includes a quote that reads, The CSC has a terrible time keeping elders employed, so they look for people who are self-declared indigenous who no one knows and who can make a salary of more than $80,000. These people will play the game. The majority of elders from capable of playing the game. Their hearts are with the prisoners, their culture, and their reality. End quote. According to the Toronto Star, Correctional Services Canada has earmarked $6 million for electronic systems to prevent drones from dropping drugs or cell phones into the yards of its institutions. The systems will be evaluated in a pilot project over the next four years in six prisons. Mission in BC, Mountain, Manitoba, Cowansville and Donnacona in Quebec, Collins Bay in Ontario, and Dorchester in New Brunswick. The CSC has issued a call for contracts for the system for the electronic system and suggests that a radar-based system might work for their needs. Political prisoner and former Black Panther Party member Jaleel Muntakim has launched a call for support for his case for the month of May. Supporters are being asked to demand that New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo commute Jaleel's sentence and release him immediately. For more information on what to say when you call, email, tweet at, or fax Cuomo, you can check out sfbayview.com under the headline Mayday Initiative to Free Jaleel Muntakim, or check out our Twitter account for a link to the article. Our Twitter handle is Prison Radio Show. In upcoming news, there's an event happening this Saturday that we would like to plug. Solidarity Across Borders is organizing a panel on prison abolition and restorative justice models that looks super interesting. It's happening on Saturday, May 11th at 2 p.m. at Concordia University in the Hall Building. The room number is H1220 on the 12th floor of the Big White Building on De Maisonneuve between Mackay and Bishop. Speakers on the panel include Netebo Ebenezer Awangafadin and Jessica Quijano. A pilot program for treating Louisiana prisoners addicted to opioids relies on a surgical implant that hasn't been approved by federal regulators, which is a source of concern for prisoner advocates and some medical professionals. The program, which was announced last week by Louisiana prison leaders, is a product of a partnership between the Louisiana Department of Public Safety and Corrections and a California healthcare company that makes the implant. The device, which is surgically implanted in prisoners addicted to opioids, releases the well-known and widely used drug naltrexone. The drug is used to fight opioid and alcohol addictions by blocking the effects and cravings for such drugs in patients who have not used drugs for at least seven days. Naltrexone has been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration only in the form of daily pills and monthly shots. The implant would work for about three to four months, officials say. An Ottawa MPP is introducing a private member's bill designed to gradually eliminate the use of solitary confinement in Ontario's correctional institutions. Ottawa Vanier MPP Nathalie Desrosiers wants to create a five-year plan to gradually phase out the practice. Before that happens, her bill, if passed, would also prohibit inmates from spending more than 60 days a year in solitary confinement. It would require medical staff to provide daily care to those inmates and create an independent oversight body that would oversee the use of solitary confinement. These next headlines are from Solitary Watch. The Sacramento Bee published recently released footage from 2017 of corrections officers brutally assaulting a man with psychiatric disabilities while he was being held in a suicide watch cell at the Auburn Main Jail in Placer County, California. 
The video, which officials initially withheld from the public at one point, shows eight officers piled on top of 28-year-old Bo Bangert before he is left alone in the cell. Bangert was awarded $300,000 as the lead plaintiff for a class action lawsuit that the county settled for a total of $1.4 million. Three corrections officers were fired as a result of the incident, but Bangert's attorney said he is not confident that the county has reformed their jails and said, quote, we are auditing their response to claims of use of force and excessive force. According to Documented, immigrants held at Essex County Correctional Facility in New Jersey, an immigration and customs enforcement facility, have been denied adequate medical treatment and have been placed in solitary confinement in violation of ICE standards. A 2018 Department of Homeland Security investigation found alarming conditions at the facility, including the lack of recreation, unsanitary showers, rotting food, and a loaded gun near a detained immigrant. Documented revealed immigrant grievances expressing fear for their lives due to the lack of medical attention and mental health services. The facility has recorded placing 60 immigrants on suicide watch since 2015, which the policy director at Detention Watch Network said, quote, looks exactly like solitary confinement. It looks like isolation and exacerbates the problem. According to Courthouse News Service, the Federal Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled in favor of three men held on Virginia's death row. The men had sued the Department of Corrections in 2014 for holding them in conditions of solitary confinement with only one hour outside for five days a week and one shower three days a week. The court found that the plaintiffs had been subject to cruel and unusual punishment and that the state was deliberately indifficult to the psychological harm caused by isolating the men. In his opinion, Judge James Wynne cited reports from the three men describing the paranoia, hallucinations, and sleeping disorders resulting from their time in solitary confinement. That's it for our news. Let's go to a song. Sunrise. When I get 
No more speed, I'm almost there Gotta keep cool now, gotta take care Last car to pass, here I go And the line of cars drove down real slow Radio play that forgotten song. Randy's coming on strong. And the newsman sang his same song. Okay, now we go to the Jerry Blessing game piece, which is titled Reclaiming the Man is assisting individuals who have been incarcerated through re-entry and helping them to become productive citizens. Jerry received a 20-year prison sentence in 1995 and served three and a half years after being paroled in 1999. He has continued to fight for change in legislation since he was granted a pardon in 2004 and is an advocate for economic and social justice. This talk was given at a TEDx event using the TED conference format but independently organized by a local community. And for those just tuning in, that song was Radar Love by the band Golden Earring. Okay, we're going to do Mark Zamet first here. Sorry, you guys. And today I'm going to talk with Mark, and we're going to talk about prison health care. Mark, so hi, Mark. How are you doing? Not too bad, Gene. Not real. Fine. So could you give our listeners a little rundown of what you do? Any background you may wish to offer? Okay, well, my name is Mark Zamet. When I'm not in in prison, I'm a chef. But uh, I left home at a very young age due to some sexual abuse issues. Nothing, nothing from my family. Was, uh, let's just call them a respected member of the neighborhood. So I left home very young at 12 years old. I ended up on the streets my whole life, became an addict. From addict, I became a booster. From booster, I became a car thief. And from a car thief, I became a bank robber. My first sentence was a simple uh, two-year stretch. Um, I piggybacked that with a five-year stretch, and before I finished warrant on that, I picked up the 14 for the banks. I hit my warrant expiry yesterday, or sorry, this morning at 12.01 a.m. I'm officially a free man for the first time in 21 years. Congratulations, congratulations. Thank you so much. I've relocated to Barrie. I am from Hamilton. I relocated to Barrie this time around. I thought I'd give it a... Uh, give Barry a shot. Uh, they put me in a halfway house here years ago on one of my failed releases and just uh, kind of fell in love with the town. And there's a lot of uh, chefs work out here. I got some friends here in the industry, so I decided to uh, to nail down my release to Barry. I got two sons, 24 and 21. I used to work in the music industry before I uh, ruined my life. Yeah, I used to own a small uh, artist management company. 
part of the other reason I came to Barry is a lot of the bands I worked with were from Barry, so I kind of had, had some small ties. But other than that, I'm just a, I'm just a simple chef. Okay. Uh, I was going to try to stay out of prison this time around. So yeah. uh, I apologize for my voice. I've been fighting the same cold for over a week. And uh, just as soon as you think it gets better, you wake up the next morning and it gets worse. So uh, just bear with me, I hope. Thoughts and prayers are with you for that. Hopefully uh, things work out for you this time. So I hear you're doing some other work there, too. You work with Payson. What do you do there? Yeah, I, um, well, I've been writing for Salt Count uh, magazine probably for the last three years, two or three years. Uh, I started off, I, I just, I sent in an article and did it over the phone, and, and she put it in. Uh, it was when I started the first LGBTQ group in Beaver Creek. I got to Beaver Creek after I had my job up in uh, Collins Bay. I cascaded down to Beaver Creek, and you would think you would have a harder time as a gay man in Collins Bay, but I'm here to tell you different. Uh, there are a lot more welcoming than they are at Beaver Creek. It was uh, with hell from the minute I walked in there. I met a, <clears throat> I met a trans woman there. We started dating. And she's HIV positive. So together, her and I started this LGBTQ2S group in Beaver Creek. Wasn't easy to get started. I mean, um, you got your Bifa and your Asian group and all this other stuff. But for some reason, the warden had me jumping through hoops to open this group. And then when we finally did get okay to open, they tried to hide us in the chapel, claiming that it would be safer for us. I refused and told them that we wanted the group where, where the rest of the groups were. So we did get that open. It was very slow taking off. Um, from what I'm told by Don, it's still slow, but people are slowly coming out of the woodwork, coming to the groups and stuff. Also, because uh, she was HIV positive, I went to healthcare. At the time, they weren't supplying the prep drug, Travada. They allowed us to share a cell. They allowed us to be a couple. So I went to healthcare and said that I, I wanted to be on this prep. They threw a couple a couple numbers at me about how expensive it would be. I told them I could care less. They know my partner is positive, so it was in their best interest to start ordering those meds for me. And from what I'm told, don't know if I can take credit for it or not, but from what I'm told by one of the nurses there who I'm still close to, and still speak with. I was one of the first to have it introduced in Ontario. So as of now, it's available through all the joints in Ontario, no questions asked. I mean, so that in itself was a big step. And I think that was the first thing that got me kind of turned on to just fighting for myself, people like me, people like my partner. And I, yeah, I just kind of fell in love with pissing them off and helping us out. So from there, I started doing stuff with Pasan. I did a lot more with Pasan. And then uh, they would come down for groups. They would sit in on groups. And then when I got out, uh, they offered me a slot on a panel to uh, to speak at Osgood Hall on prison reform, on, on the health issues in prison, the lack of health care, because, I mean, it's yeah. not much. No um, kidding, man. I, I went through that stuff for the hepatitis C years ago, and the same thing. Oh, it's too expensive, and it took years to get it in there. And I did the old treatment with the interferon, which was hell. Now they're yeah. giving it to more people when they realize it costs more money if they don't treat them. So it's getting along. Still, it's still a battle for anything. Medication is expensive. They got their budgets. 
and uh, yeah, it's really health. So when you went and did these halls to do your speeches, could you uh, tell me a little bit of what you said about healthcare? Well, there was there was a lot of a lot of question and answer stuff. So I mean, the questions were random. Some were um, some were HIV focused, uh, some were Hep C focused, but a lot of the questions were just they wanted to know in general anything from mental health to just regular health care. So I spoke on Suboxone and Methadone. I was lucky enough, I, I beat the Hep C. My, my fighter cells did it on their own. I didn't have to go through the treatment. I got lucky. But yeah, a lot of the, a lot a lot of the students and whatnot at Osgood were more focused on how accessible healthcare is uh, behind the wall. So I did a lot of talking and bitching about you know you you put in a request and and six months later you get your request back even though um, the CD state that they got 15 days to reply. You know I got requests back from healthcare four to six months later being told I was added to the waiting list. So I have an artificial kneecap, I have plates and pins in my femur, in my tibia, in my jaw, like you name it, I have an artificial elbow. My right leg is a little shorter than my left due to the surgery. So I was in constant pain. Once did I go to them and ask for a narcotic. Everything I asked for was a non-narcotic. I am, I am an addict, so you know, and with the nerve damage and stuff, uh, for me, it was gabapentin and Lyrica that worked. But they wouldn't give it to me. They offered me morphine. I don't want morphine. I'm an addict. That's incredible. Usually what they'll do is not give morphine. And they'll, you know, if they're forced to, they'll give you like Lyrica or gabapentin, like you said. Because well, I know guys who were in pain by, give nothing. Buy healthcare because uh, CSC won't pay for Lyrica. And the gabapentin, I was on the gabapentin for years until um, they decided that it had a very high monetary value. So... What they did was they they took everyone who wasn't diabetic off of gabapentin and put them on morphine. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, and I refused morphine uh, once again. Not uh, not a good choice for me to go down the opiate route. So the entire time at Beaver Creek, I was in pain, and I got nothing but ibuprofen. And then one of the better nurses would grab me and tell me, oh, you're eating too much ibuprofen. You know, you're going to hurt your stomach. And I was like, well, how about giving me something that works then? No kidding. Um, no kidding. I was put on several lists by a certain nurse who actually gives a shit about us. And nurses would go in behind her and take guys like me off the list. So I never got, I I got no help, zero, absolutely no help whatsoever. (laughs) I don't even know what else to say. I got zero help. And uh, to the point where I would have grievances and then I'd have sit-downs with the chief of healthcare, she would directly lie to my face, tell me, oh, well, we have to fill this special form out for Lyrica, and, and we're, we're doing your paperwork, and you will get it, and that it never happened. Um, I was at Beaver Creek for three years, and I got nothing but ibuprofen. You can guess, I'm sure, like, that my right leg is seven-eighths of an inch shorter than my left, so I have quite the length, which also my hip sits off kilter, so it's not just places where my surgeries were that hurt. Now my lower back is killing me. Now my hip is killing me. There were mornings where... It took me 10, upwards of 15 minutes to get out of bed, you know, to get to go down to eat or something like that. And, uh, you know, like, uh, we, we'd go up there, not me specifically, necessarily, but guys would go up there with, and I'm not even exaggerating, guys would go up there with broken legs that, you know, they broke their leg in, um, say, a ball game. And, you know, 
a couple of guys would help him up to healthcare. They would force him to walk back to his unit, go to a two bar, have the two bar phone up to healthcare, and then send him back up there. Hands on a broken leg. You know, what you're talking about, I've been at all these pens in this country at one time or another, and you know what? That's a similar to the federal system. It's just garbage. Like you said, you've seen this for a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Right, uh, right. And you can't and, win when yeah, you try to yeah, fight yeah, these like, people. It's I'm, almost impossible. Go ahead, sorry, you can go ahead. Oh, I thought you were uh, finishing. <laughs> I am, I am, I am. I'm waiting for you to oh, talk. Okay. <laughs> well, um, yeah, no, I mean, I've, I, I've seen one gentleman, uh, God rest his soul, uh, he went up there, I'm talking maybe three times a week for over a year. And uh, they just, you know, he was complaining about stomach pain, stomach pain, stomach pain. They gave him ibuprofen, they gave him Maalux, they gave him stool softeners, they gave him, uh, you know, stuff to make him go to the bathroom. And he kept coming back saying, no, it's worse, it's worse, it's worse. Well, it got to the point where every time he showed up at healthcare, they charged him. So now, you know, he goes for parole and he's got 14 or so charges for Institution, being out of balance. Institutional charges. Disrespectful to yeah, an officer. Yeah, yeah. The man is in pain. Well, eventually he made it to camp. And when he got to camp, he saw a new doctor. The doctor took him into town and did uh, whatever it is the doctors are supposed to do. And uh, they found out he had stomach cancer. And within a month, he was dead. I've seen that before myself. You're right. Yeah. It's just, and you know... The, the nurse that I am close with pulled me aside and literally told me that Dr. Hill there at Beaver Creek is solely responsible for my friend's death. And she has no doubt that uh, he, he is to blame. Yeah, uh, I, I still talk to her every day. I mean, she came down to, my, to the cell count launch okay. uh, when we did that. So she is actually at this time preparing to leave CSE. She's just had enough. I mean, it's hard to care for a patient when you get penalized for caring for that patient. So she landed a job in a rehab, so she's on her way out, and she couldn't be more happy about it. The other the other thing I ran into as of late was upon my release, I needed to see mental health. It took me six months to see mental health. And when I got into mental health, I said, listen, I need help with my ODSP paperwork. And they're like, oh, well, we don't have enough time for that now. You're talking about on the street, to at a hospital on the street? No, no, no. This was uh, the health care at Beaver Creek. Okay, and the minimum. Minimum security, right? No, medium. Okay, medium. Yeah, you know, I, I sat down with mental health because of my PTSD and stuff, and I thought maybe they'd you know, help me with some paperwork for ODSP. It wasn't his fault by any, by, by any stretch. He wanted to, but they didn't give him enough time. And then once I had left custody and uh, came into my apartment on road, that mental health worker is no longer allowed to fill out my ODSP work, my ODSP paperwork. My friend that works for healthcare who wanted to fill out my ODSP paperwork was told if she does, she'll lose her job. So now here I sit on welfare uh, looking for work, obviously, but... Pretty tough, eh? Uh, how am I supposed to get my ODSP paperwork filled out? I, there's not a doctor out here that knows me. A clinic doctor won't do it. And the doctor that I've known for the last 14 years behind the wall uh, apparently is not allowed to do it. So I don't even know where I'm going next. Uh, I just kind of feel it out and hopefully one day land the, one day soon land a family doctor. Well, hopefully so, so because, you know, you, you were hoping that after the hell of uh, health care in uh, prison, that when mm-hmm. you did get out, it, uh, you would at least get some relief and some things would move forward. But it right. just shows you that uh, bureaucracy, like in jail there, which is worse, by the way, but still, <laughs> out in the street, bureaucracy still gets in the way, eh? 
Yeah, and then even the day of my release, I stood up in healthcare for, uh, oh my goodness, it must have been about an hour and a half to get my release meds. We were supposed to get two weeks of each medication. So I was supposed to get, you know, two weeks of my Prozac, two weeks of my, my cholesterol meds, my triglyceride meds, all kinds of stuff, uh, even my prep meds. When they finally decided to serve me, I got one week of half of my meds. So I was released with hardly any of my medication whatsoever. I mean, your name pops up when your release is coming out. Your parole officer knows, uh, healthcare knows, mental health, mental, uh, mental health knows, A and D knows. There's absolutely no reason that healthcare shouldn't have my medication ready for me. No kidding. Are you having problems with your parole officer over all this? Is he part of the problem, or is he any kind of solution or help or anything? My parole officer inside was 100% part of the problem. And the outside? On the outside, uh, as helpful as she was, I was only had a very short time left to warrant. Okay. So, yeah, there wasn't much I, I, she was willing to do. She just, you know, brushed me under the carpet. So, so now my warrant, uh, my warrant is not passed today. <laughs> and yeah, I, I'm after I hang up with you, I'm going to the clinic to uh, actually get some Lyrica and stuff from my leg and my Prozac. But I had to go on OW to cover everything. Okay. Yeah, because they, 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 CSC, uh, it's not a long shot to say that CSC offers zero help whatsoever oh it's not believe me it's a certainty they don't i know i i i I was inside for decades and i can tell you i've experienced a lot of what you're saying and so so many people have and uh, you know it all comes down to dollars and cents for them you're out of sight out of mind and they can do what they want with you out of mind but then when you're in sight you're picking up a charge because you're out of bounds <laughs> that's how they control you you know if you're too much of a problem if you're making any waves especially if you're bringing up a point that is uh, legally correct uh, you know that is right and but oh, it's going to cause them to spend money or problems that's when they get on you and shut you up. Absolutely. Oh, no, Absolutely. No. Right. The only thing I found um, to work, and I didn't have this option because I, I didn't really have anybody on the outside, but, I mean, if people start calling from the outside, families and stuff, they may move a little bit quicker, but even that is short-lived. Yeah. Once they once once they basically get you to shut up, they they put you into the same pile as everybody else again, and you start all over. My trans partner, like I said, was HIV positive. She's undetectable, untransmittable, but nonetheless, um, over the time that we were together, I can guarantee, just off the top of my head, there was at least five weeks that she went without her HIV meds. She's undetectable and untransmittable, but then you don't give her her meds for. A month, two months, three months, her immune system's going to go to shit and she's going to get sick again. Yeah, and maybe um, the medication won't work the second or third time around when they well, got It was grievance upon grievance upon grievance. And then, you know, they kiss your butt for a minute and uh, to shut you up. And then almost instantaneously, uh, the next time you hand your cards in, something goes missing again. I mean, uh, I had one nurse call me up and say to me, he said to me, your cholesterol is very dangerously high and you have to work on lowering it. So my cholesterol that I'm supposed to be getting. And he looked at me like, you can see it on paper that I'm on a very high dose of cholesterol, right? But he can also see on paper that I didn't have it for 90 days. So for you to call me and then tell me my cholesterol is too high and in the same breath, uh, <laughs> not admit fault for not uh, giving me my meds. 
Like, it's just incredible, isn't it? They, they're supposed to be the ones that help you, fix you, and they come in and tell you, okay, go fix yourself. What the hell? Right, what the hell is a doctor? Right, even? Why know, do we have doctors I, I, and nurses in the joint for? It's just incredible. Oh, it's insane. I mean, in the, in the 21 years I was in total, I could maybe count three nurses that are actually worth their weight in anything. But then you, you get these nurses that, that care about us and go out of the way, you know, and get us in there without an appointment booked or whatever. And then the next thing you know, they're being suspended or they're being threatened or or they're being transferred or they're being accused. Um, uh, the, the good ones don't last because CSC doesn't want the good ones to last. That just shows to show you they want control only over the prisoners. They want control over the people who work there. The only ones who right. have power there who can get away with anything is the guards because they run the goddamn thing. Their union are so strong. But the nurses are up and uh, go with the flow, you know, unfortunately. Well, there was a, uh, uh, several times where uh, myself and, let's say, one or two or more, you know, we'd put in a grievance or we'd go, you know, beating on the warden's door or whatever it was at the time. would say to us, there's nothing we can do with health care. <laughs> I wait, wait, you run this prison. How can you not? You know what I mean? Like it's it's just ridiculous. Like, you know one is, thing: a doctor in an institution has more power than the warden. A warden cannot tell a doctor. They usually do. They used to say, okay, give the guy something to shut him up or something. And the doctor will usually do it. But if a doctor wants to say no, he literally has the power to tell the warden to hit it because he doesn't have to do it. You know, they have so much power in that respect. Yet, when it comes to the budget and all that, they bend to the warden. But yeah, they have so much power. And if they spend the money or help the guys, then they're gone. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a tough, it's, you know, prisoners are really in a tough place. You got no power. And, you, you know, it's always poor, marginalized people in jail for the majority of the part so they have no uh, nobody fighting for them they have no money or nothing and that's why you know they're out of sight to behind bars on top of it so uh, do you find that same thing oh absolutely it, it, absolutely like they constantly tell us well you have the grievance process well no we don't because in 21 years I can count on three fingers how many grievances I want and I am a very vindictive and, and <laughs> I don't shut up and I don't put my tail between my legs and walk away. I'm still getting grievances sent to my <laughs> to my apartment that are still ongoing. I'd say eight out of ten of every grievances aren't upheld. Oh, uh, whether it's healthcare or anything else, they're just not upheld. There's a loophole for everything. There is a loophole for them for everything. Oh yeah, those things are. It's just just all it is is just they drag it out on purpose and go for months and months hoping. The majority of people end up just quitting the grievance process because, you know, they ain't getting no answer. And that's what they do. They drag everything out and take so long. People move along. But, you know, like people like you who kept fighting. Like like you said before, you were, you, you said you didn't want to take credit for the, the group in, uh, was it Beaver Creek? Yeah, Beaver Creek, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you were a pioneer there and you kept fighting. But I'll tell you what, I'm glad, I'm really happy we're talking to you today because it just shows you that somebody who f- continues to fight for the right reasons and fights hard, and you went through hell for it. And that's what usually happens. You have to pay a price. But you know mm. what? You, you did something that somebody else could move on. You know, like, maybe it won't change the world. Somebody has to do these things, and I'm, uh, I'm really proud of you for doing that there. Thanks. And um, I get, like, uh, you know, a couple, a couple guys that I did my time with and stuff, you know, they're, they're past their warrants as well now. 
Uh, you know, they see me online doing stuff. I have a, I have a side page off my Facebook that I've so lo- lovingly uh, called Corruption Service Canada. Um, <laughs> so true. I also true. have um, a D.O. <laughs> that uh, uh, my trans partner, uh, Dio, that we set up a web page for that we're, we're trying to at least, well, you know what, at this point, we're, we'll, we'll take what we can get. But my final goal is to get it overturned into an LTO. You know, I got guys popping up on my Facebook that I've done time with, like, that give me love and stuff for continuing the battle out here because you can piss a, a, a ton of people off in there. And sadly enough, once they get their free date, they forget about their brothers inside. I made it perfectly clear to my family in there that I'm not that guy that's going to forget, and I'm not that guy that's going to forget where he came from. A lot of bad shit happened to me in there, but I have this conversation every day with somebody, and that's my family in there. That is my family in there, and uh, I won't forget about them. And I won't rest until I've pissed off enough people well, where, uh, where, where something's done, at least. Well, that's what I, that's a good segue into what, well, actually, you pretty well answered it. I was, But I was going to say, uh, I didn't want to interrupt you because <laughs> you're going so good. But basically, that was a good segue into my next question, which was like, you know, like we're getting to the end of this interview. So I wanted to know what you want to do for the future. Obviously, you're, you're committed to fighting this fight, which is great. Oh. And so I'd like to know what you committed. plan in the future. What's your, what's your, what's, what do you see doing going forward? What can we do in your eyes out here and inside to change the health? I know, I mean, it's like moving a rock up a mountain, but still, we have to try. So how would you to try moving forward? What, what, what do you think? Well, anybody that's done any time, I mean, the shit that goes on in healthcare, don't believe what the bloody doctor tells you. Don't believe what their nurses tell you. Call a lawyer, man. I just found one. I'm hoping she's going to take my case. And it, my suit is not necessarily directed directly at the CSC. It's directed at the healthcare in CSC. I've uh, I've been talking to her, and, and I don't know things look good. We might be starting some, something there. Um. So yeah, like whatever excuse they give you, if you have somebody on the outside, a wife, a brother, a sister, a mother, get them to get a hold of a lawyer and find out exactly what your healthcare rights are, because they won't tell you the truth. And if you just sit down and take it, then the guy behind you is going to take it, and the guy behind him is going to take it, and nobody's going to get what they need. Beyond that, I continue to write for Passan. I speak at conferences with Passan on panels and stuff. I've started web pages. I stay in touch with all my brothers and sisters in there. I send pen packages to the boys in there. I send money to the boys in there. And I just let them know, like, I am your link on the outside now. I am no longer property of corrections, and I can make those calls for you. So you don't have somebody out there, then... Oh, you're in a big trouble. Yeah. yeah, things are incredibly hard. Without Even with somebody out there, things are hard. But without somebody out there, you're right. You're completely lost if you have no assets or anything. I agree 100%. Well, I tell you, Mark, this has been a great, great interview, and you're a great, great guy, and nothing but the best moving forward. Okay, Mark. Okay, you know, that was Mark Zamek, who did a great interview, a really great interview. And he not only fought the good fight for all prisoners whilst he was inside prison, but he continues to do the same in the community now. 
We are thankful for him and all the many others who put their heart and soul into helping the voiceless and powerless be heard. Okay, now it is currently 5.43 p.m. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and online at www.ckut.ca. Next up is a couple commercials, followed by the interview with Jerry Blassingham, which was supposed to be earlier, but we just found it. Up from the 36 chambers! It's the ghost! Legendary Wu-Tang Clan comes to Canada, one of the best hip-hop groups of all time, will be at the Bell Center on July 12th to celebrate the 25th anniversary of their monumental debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers. Tickets go on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. on eventco.ca. CKUT would like to thank our 2019 fundraising food sponsors. Fairmont Bagels, Frigovair, Vua Sandwiches, Pizza Bouquet, Jamaican Fast Food Takeout, Depaneur Le Pickup, Caribbean Food Factory, and Shea Tony. You know, 2.3 million Americans are locked up right now inside our jails and prisons. 70 million were 1981-53. I was born a statistic, born out of wedlock. The most vivid memory I have of my mother is one night she was arguing with a boyfriend and I was in the next room. And I looked around, pow, pow. Two shots rang out. Now let me take you on a journey what happens to a little boy who suffers from PTSD. Five years old, my mother is dead. To take away the pain, I indulged at nine years old in pornography and later into alcohol. I managed to get through high school, ended up getting a two-year scholarship to college to study architectural engineering. This was in the height of the crack epidemic. So I soon find myself selling drugs, cocaine. I came home from school one day when I was in college and a friend of mine who was selling drugs for me poured a bag of money out on my bed and said, this is how much money you made today. It was $10,000. Well, I said, looks like my career as an architect is over. I was a pretty good chemist, and I began to cook up crack cocaine for the local drug dealers here in Greenville. I was making $20,000 a week as a 20-year-old. Well, $20,000 a week, two more years in school as an architect, hmm. It was hard to give up. The first time I was arrested, I got a 15-year sentence and spent into nine months and five years probation. I served four months on that sentence. Six months after I was released, guess what? I got arrested again. So let me tell you what happens when you're caught up in the drug game and you're caught up in poverty. It's like a rat race. 
My bond was $150,000. My attorney charged me $20,000. So now I'm having to get in the street to raise money to continue up this rat race. Anyway, the second time I was out on bail and they revoked my bond. And they locked me up until I went to court. The judge sentenced me to 20 years. When I got to the Department of Corrections, I thought I was going to die. I saw other brown and black men like men. I said, what are you doing here? And why are you here? And they were like, well, this is my third time being in prison. This is my fourth time being in prison. I couldn't find a job when I get out. I couldn't find a house when I got out. And I knew that I was going to be in that situation. I made a decision. Growing up as a kid, I hated God. I didn't think God existed. What kind of God would allow a little boy's mother to be murdered and I never met my dad? But I took a, I took a choice. I began to read the Bible and I, I gave my life to a higher power. And I put faith in place. And I began to read and I began to study and I began to journal. You know, when you're in prison, there is no hope. And I began to ask myself, where is hope? And when I would get up in the morning and, and, and I would study and I would pray, I remember saying, hope is the thing that's on the inside of me that says no, that says yes. When everybody else saying no, it's saying yes. Where is hope? Well, the thing that was locked up on the inside of me was allowing me to unlock others. I, I was teaching guys in prison to read and write. And I began to study and I began to pin the vision of what I'm doing now. See, because I knew that one day I was going to be out. Every day for three and a half years, I made one confession. I will not be here long. I put my faith in something else. March of 1999, I was paroled on a 20 year prison sentence. I served three and a half years on a 20 year prison sentence. My wife married me a year before I got out. One thing I realized that there is something that we have to do to help people that are in prison. And what did I come up with? I made an acronym up for here housing. Employment, education, affirmation, and advocacy. You know that 27% of all men who were arrested, the night they were arrested, they were homeless. 67% said been homeless within the last three years. And we look at all these people out here and we say they ought to get a job. Well, it's hard to get a job when you have a criminal background. Very hard. Do you know there are 48,000 collateral consequences, things that bar you from housing and jobs and education and licenses once you have a criminal background? Employment. Statistics say that after a person is released from prison, the first year, 60% are still unemployed because of their criminal backgrounds. In 2004, I was given a pardon by the South Carolina Department of Corrections. I served five years on 11 years parole, and I applied for a pardon, and they gave me a pardon, thank God. But guess what? It was still hard for me to get a job because a pardon is not expungible in the state of South Carolina. 
go figure. What is a pardon mean? You're forgiven. I forgive you, but oh, yeah, I don't forgive you. Affirmation. While I was in prison, I had some professors from Clemson University to write me. They pen pal me. And 20 years later, I still have those loving relationships in my life right now. It is so important because as someone mentioned earlier, I heard in their talk, over 60 percent of people in prison have a mental health issue. Can you imagine being locked up, taken away from your family and taken away from your job or whatever you were doing? Even if you didn't have some type of mental health, mental health issue, that would give you one. But look at me. I had undiagnosed PTSD. Didn't even realize it. But I had hope. Mentoring is a big part of our program. It's a huge part. Every guy in our program gets a mentor for one year. Advocacy. I have a good friend, Glenn Martin, who, who started an organization in New York, and this is one of his quotes. Those who are closest to the problem are closest to the resources, but furthest from the power. I want to tell you something. Greenville County gets over a thousand people a year that come back to our community every year from being incarcerated. We spend over $500 million a year, a half a billion dollars a year to incarcerate our citizens. They are coming out. 90% of the people who are in prison are getting released. And if we don't educate and provide housing, they're going to continue to go back. That one in three that I was talking about of black men, and we call young black men predators, but we're not giving these young black men an opportunity. That's crazy. We are people too. The prison system does not rehabilitate. I've been there, I know. I'm telling you, nothing. If I had not have depended on my faith and people, and, and people who were writing me and mentoring me, I would still be in prison right now. I had a 20-year sentence. One last thing that I want to talk about. We have got to do a better job to receive people back. I don't know where you work, what you do, but that dreaded checkbox, when a person goes into an a interview room and they sit down and they see the dreaded checkbox, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Most people just quit. I had a guy in my program, he filled out 60 applications before he got a job. So what are we doing? We started a recycling business about eight years ago. This is a plastic bottle. We care more about this bottle than we do a human being. Look around the city of Greenville, you see recycling bins everywhere. But look at the men and women who have criminal backgrounds. So we've created jobs for men. We've created social enterprise. If I had not have created a job for myself 19 years ago, I would be unemployed right now. Not only am I creating jobs for myself, but I've created jobs for over 700 men in the last 20 years. We've helped over 5,000 men, men and women in the last 20 years to transition back into society with no government funding. Four years ago, we created a business a recycling business where we reclaim old houses. We tear down old houses by hand. 
We reclaim the lumber and we make reclaimed wood furniture. We're reclaiming lives as we reclaim things that would rather be in the landfill. So do me a favor. When you see us on the street, don't call us ex-cons. Don't call us ex-felons. Don't call us criminals. I'm a neighbor. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I am a man. That was Jerry Blassingame, the executive director of Soteria Community Development Corporation and senior pastor of Soteria Christian Fellowship. Uh, that was a talk that Jerry gave titled Reclaiming the Man. Sorry for the techers at the beginning. If you want to, you can find the entire talk on YouTube. For more information about the prison radio show or to check out past episodes of our show, you can look us up online. We have a blog. It's at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday of the month at 11 a.m. The next show will air on Friday, May 24th at 11 a.m. If you have any questions on anything that you've heard on today's show or if you want to be involved in the show, feel free to contact us. Our email address is prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are especially encouraged to participate. People can also call us if you want to, you can call the listener comment line at the station. It's 514-448-4041, extension 2547. And if you're in prison and you want to participate in the show in any way possible, you can write to us by snail mail. Uh, we're at the Prison Radio Show, or you can just write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A2B3. It is 5.59 p.m. This is CKUT 90.3 FM, and this has been the Prison Radio Show. Thank you.